No matter the road we choose, at the end of this journey that we call life, there stands a gate, shut fast. It is not opened for good people. It will not budge for those who lived right or loved well or did great deeds. It will only open for those who put their faith in the Son of God. Those who, in life, called upon the name of Jesus and believed Him when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you want to find your place with me in your Bible at the book of Galatians, we're going to be reading in just a few minutes verses 6 to 12, and I invite you to follow along with me when I read from that passage. We have been in a series of messages that we simply entitled Fraud Alert, and we've been talking about four specific things. The first week we talked about no other God. There's only one God. Uh, his name is Yahweh. Sometimes we call him Jehovah. We look secondly at no other name. There's only one name by which we can be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. Last week we talked about no other foundation, that we're building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and we have to be careful how we go about building. But today we're going to talk about no other gospel, and this is the final message in this series before we move into some Christmas messages. But today we're going to be reading in verse 6 through verse 12, and I invite you to follow along with me. Paul writing says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that what we have preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, I thank you for the beautiful music that was sung here a few minutes ago. Our young people, the youth band, our children who sang along, and then of course all of us in the congregation who joined our voices together and to be able to worship you in song together with our young people and children was a true blessing. Thank you for them. And Lord, will you bless them as they continue to live for you and learn of you. And Lord, just watch over them and guide them and help them as they seek to follow you all the days of their lives. Lord, today we turn our attention to this last message in this series. And Lord, we're talking about something that is the cornerstone of our faith and it'll give us something by the time we end this message for which to give thanks. And I pray, Lord God, that our hearts will be overflowing with gratitude. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It was January of 2000, and there were leaders in Charlotte, North Carolina, who had asked their favorite son, Billy Graham, if he would come 
to a luncheon that was going to be held in his honor. At first, he was hesitant about doing that. At that point, he was in his early 80s. He was suffering with uh, Parkinson's disease, and so he thought it might not be the best thing for him. But they prevailed upon him, and they told him that you wouldn't have to make any kind of a major address. They just wanted him to come and to let them honor him. So uh, he decided that he would do that. He went to that luncheon, and after a lot of wonderful things that were said about him, Dr. Graham stood to the rostrum, and he, took, he looked at the crowd, and he said, I'm reminded today of Albert Einstein, the great physicist, who this month has been honored by Time magazine as the man of the century. He goes on. Einstein was once traveling from Princeton on a train when the conductor came down the aisle, punching the tickets of every passenger. When he came to Einstein, Einstein reached in his vest pocket. He couldn't find his ticket, so he reached in his trousers pocket. It wasn't there. So he looked in his briefcase but couldn't find it. He looked in the seat beside him. He still couldn't find it. The conductor said, Dr. Einstein, uh, Dr. Einstein I know you, who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. Well, Einstein obviously nodded in appreciation, and the conductor continued on down the aisle checking people's tickets. And as he was getting ready to move to the next car, he turned around and he saw the great physicist down on his knees and hands looking under the seat for his ticket. And the conductor rushed back to him and said, Dr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein don't worry about it. I know who you are. No problem. You don't need a ticket. I'm sure you bought one. Einstein looked at him and said, young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. <laughs> well, having said that, Billy Graham continued, and these are his words, see the suit I'm wearing? It's a brand new suit. My children and my grandchildren are telling me I've gotten a little slovenly in my old age. So I went out and bought a new suit for this luncheon and one more occasion. You know what that occasion is, he said? This is the suit in which I'll be buried. But when you hear I'm dead, I don't want you to remember the suit I'm wearing. I want you to remember this. I not only know who I am, I also know where I'm going. I'm looking out at people today, many of you know not only who you are, but you know where you are going. And aren't you thankful for that understanding and that knowledge? But I also recognize that there are a lot of people who are watching us live and those that are here in this room who might not know where you are going and what a difficult way to live your life. Aren't we thankful that somebody brought us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Aren't we thankful that somebody cared enough to tell us what Jesus had done for us and how we could come to be children of the living God through the gospel of Jesus Christ? And for the next few minutes, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about the gospel from these verses of Scripture. There is no other gospel that saves than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to talk about this gospel for a few minutes, and maybe I'm going to reverse the the order of my points here, then you might find them uh, as you would normally read through here, but it's because I want to close by doing something very special. As we talk about the gospel today, first of all, I want you to know that we must protect the gospel fiercely. We must protect 
the gospel fiercely. It's interesting as you read the book of Galatians that Paul is writing to a a group of people in this territory of Galatia that are being confused by people who had come in behind him and were preaching another gospel. It's only been about six months since Paul was in Galatia. You read about it in Acts 13 and 14, and there's four different cities in that region where Paul had gone. And when he got there, he preached the gospel in each of those cities, and people came to faith in the Lord Jesus, and they were discipled, and they were organized into churches, and they began to grow in their faith. But some six months or so later, Paul's now gone, and somebody else has come. Several others have come, and they've begun turning the gospel of Christ into something that it wasn't. As a matter of fact, if you notice again at the end of verse 6, he says it's a different gospel, which is not another. Now, the word different and the word another, is, it's a play on words. One of them means different in the sense of another of a different sort. And the other word, another, means another of the same sort. It would be a little bit like me saying this. If you knew I like to drive Fords, you might uh, pray for me, first of all. But you might say, I might say to you, I, I, bought another, I bought another new car. And you'd say, well, what kind did you buy, preacher? And I'd say, I bought a Ford. And you'd say, well, that's another of the same kind. But if I were to say to you, I bought another car, and you say, what kind is it, preacher? And I said, I bought a Volkswagen. You would say, well, that's another of a different kind. And that's the idea that the Apostle Paul is using here. These people who've come behind me, are bringing you something that is another of a different kind. It's not another of the exact same kind. And they came preaching something that simply wasn't the truth. If you notice at the middle or the end of verse 7, he says they pervert the gospel of Christ. They twist it and they turn it. They change it from what it is to something that it isn't. Uh, It's a different gospel that they're proclaiming. And the Apostle Paul is writing this letter for the primary purpose of protecting fiercely the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't think he's doing so, twice, he repeats it twice. In verse 8 and then in verse uh, 9, he says, those that have come to you preaching this different gospel, this other gospel that's not really another gospel of the same kind, He says, I want you to know that those people, whether it's me, an angel, or any of them, let them be accursed. And he says it twice. I want to make sure you understand. I want them to be accursed. It's a word that means dedicated to destruction. I want them to be destroyed because they're teaching something and they're preaching something that simply isn't the truth. And the result is, in verse 6, they're turning people away. They're confusing them. They're causing them to to be disturbed internally. They're not at ease anymore about what they're thinking and what they're believing, and they've been turned away to something that isn't the gospel. And so Paul writes this letter for for the purpose of confronting. I mean, he, he is protecting fiercely the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so should we. Any Bible believing church is just one liberal preacher away from apostasy. One liberal preacher away from apostasy. You know, in our day and age, it sort of happens like this. The gospel is accepted, and then it's assumed. 
with time it becomes confused until finally the gospel is lost. In other words, it's something that gradually occurs. It's something that's a drift that occurs. And we start adding things to the gospel or we start taking things away from the core of the gospel. And the result is that you don't have the true gospel anymore. And it is our responsibility as the church, which Paul says to Timothy is the pillar and the ground of the truth. It is our responsibility to come and make sure that we are protecting fiercely the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we're not allowing ourselves or anyone else in our midst to change the gospel from what the Bible tells us that it is. Author Trevin Wax has written a book about counterfeit gospels. He wrote it a few years ago, and if you haven't read it, it might be something you'd be interested in reading. But in his introduction to his book, I want to read to you three or four paragraphs just to help get an idea of why we have to protect the gospel fiercely. He writes, modern society lives in an age of terror. Unstable nations build weapons of mass destruction. Islamic fascists plant bombs in New York's Times Square, blow up trains in Spain, and create chaos in English uh, subways. The threat of a nuclear attack constantly lurks in the background of our consciousness. Now imagine a quieter weapon of mass destruction. A weapon that, when unleashed, can do as much damage to a nation as explosive acts of war. Historically, one of the great weapons of mass destruction, he says, is actually nothing more than a piece of paper, a counterfeit bill, a fraud, a counterfeit bill. The most dangerous threat to our way of life might be something as small and unnoticeable as a missing watermark on a $20 bill. He continues, just think of what would happen if counterfeit bills flooded America. It would be massive confusion. It would take millions of dollars to educate the populace in becoming experts at seeing the truth in order to spot the fakes. By imitating the genuine, the counterfeit money creates confusion and typically distorts the value of the real currency. The counterfeit works because it mimics the real deal so well that customers and businesses spread the fake money until even governments are affected. And then he makes the jump to talk about the gospel. Today, many dangers threaten the Christian church. A cultural shift has brought accusations against the church as being extreme or closed-minded. Militant Islam has increased. Birth rates have declined in countries that were once known as Christian. Religious persecution continues. And among church leaders, moral failings still persist. Yet the greatest threat to Christianity may not be the modern culture, blatant heresies, or the rise of Islam. If the seeds of destruction can come from the counterfeit, could it be such seeds? Could it be such seeds as slowly being planted through the counterfeit gospels within the church? Could it be that we are unwittingly participating in printing the counterfeit gospel? What if we're manufacturing counterfeit currency by the way we think and speak about the gospel? And then he finishes by saying, Christians and non-Christians are often drawn to counterfeit gospels. Even those of us who have walked with the Lord for many years may be inclined to accept cheap imitations of the truth. Why, he asks? Because they are easy. 
They cost us less. And they make us popular with people whose opinions matter to us. Counterfeits, he says, are like candy. They may be pleasant to the taste, but they leave us spiritually malnourished. And then he goes on in the book to list six or eight different kinds of counterfeit gospels that are afoot in the churches of America today. We have to fight fiercely for the gospel. We have to know what the gospel is, and then we have to defend it with all of our hearts and all of our beings. You understand that many of the letters that the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament were written to correct error. When you get to the book of Revelation and you read chapters 2 and 3, you're reading about churches, at least most of them, that had drifted away from the truth and they had drifted into error. Our life group uh, on Wednesday evenings is talking through and discussing through the book of Jude. It's been fun. Jude's one chapter, and we've been in one chapter for like five weeks, and we won't finish until the end of this year. We've been going a couple of verses, maybe three verses at a time, and just talking through, discussing through the book of Jude. But as the book of Jude opens, listen to what Jude has to say. Jude chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've ever read the book of Job, he goes on with stinging comments about those who have brought that kind of a false gospel. Why? Why should we earnestly contend for, for the faith? Why should we get in the fight for the gospel? Why should we defend it fiercely? Well, it ought to be obvious. If you change the gospel, you no longer have the salvation of Jesus Christ. And before you know it, a church has become apostate. A people have become apostate. I mean, if we tell people that someone who believes, and then we name whatever that is, is born again, and it's not biblically true, then we're misleading the very people that we care about most. If you're not telling your children the gospel of Jesus Christ, the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ, you may well be misleading your children to an eternal hell. In our churches... Churches like this where there's people gathered on a Sunday morning, if the preachers who stand behind the pulpits are not proclaiming the true gospel, they may well be leading the people that listen to them every week to be separated from God forever. This is a message, the gospel message is a message that we hold dear. This is a message that is extremely valuable. This is a message that you don't tamper with. You don't add to it, and you don't take away from it. Many years ago, there was a woman and her small baby that were traveling on a train. It was a wintry day. The wind was blowing and whipping, and it was bitter cold outside. There was snow that was covering the ground like blankets covering the ground. And this woman was on a journey to see some friends who were going to meet her at a small railroad station. 
As the conductor came down the aisle to check people's tickets, she asked the conductor, will you be sure and let me know when it's time to get off the train? She wanted to get off at the right place. And the conductor said, certainly I'll do that. I'll be sure to come and to get you. Well, there was a man that was sitting close to her and heard this conversation, and he slipped up to her afterwards and said, ma'am, the, the, the conductor gets really busy sometimes, and he may forget, but I know this route. I know this route quite well, and the station where you want to get off is the first stop of the train. I'll make sure that you know the right place when the time comes. Well, after a little while, the train stopped, but the conductor didn't come to get this woman, and the man slipped up and said, see, what did I tell you? He got busy. He forgot about you. This is the first stop. This is your station. You get off right here, and she got off with her little baby. The train continued on for another hour or so, and it stopped yet again. And the conductor came back through and said, where's the woman with her baby? And the man said, oh, you forgot to tell her about getting off at the first stop. And I told her, so she's already gotten off the train. And the conductor said, the first stop? That wasn't the first stop. That was an emergency stop. They backed the train up, and they found the woman hovered over her little baby, both of them frozen to death, because the wrong information can be deadly. The wrong information about the gospel can be eternally deadly. We have to know what the gospel is, and we have to fiercely defend the gospel. He has given it to our trust and we don't tamper with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a definition for the gospel. You'll not be able to write this down. This is a little, it's a short paragraph, but you won't be able to write it down quickly enough. It's online. If you go to today's message and you'll see sermon guides, just click on sermon guides. By the way, you can do that on the app and you can follow along and you can keep up with the outline right on the app right here in the service. But I've read hundreds, probably hundreds, maybe not hundreds, but dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of definitions of the gospel. Um, it's always interesting to do that and to see how people say it a little bit differently and to see sometimes how people misstate the gospel. And I've, I've read dozens and dozens of, of different definitions of the gospel, and to be truthful, I wasn't really satisfied with any of those definitions. So I've taken several of those definitions and I've combined them into one that I think communicates well the gospel. So listen to it just for a moment. The gospel is the good news that God, who is more holy than we can imagine, looked upon us with compassion, who are more sinful than we would possibly admit, and sent Jesus into history to reconcile us to himself. This reconciliation was accomplished by Jesus, whose love is more extravagant than we can measure, sacrificially dying for us so that by his death and resurrection, we might receive through his grace what the Bible describes as eternal life, simply by believing in him. Now, it may shock you to know that 
Many of the definitions that I've read through the years talk about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, but they leave off the one most important response that every person has to give to that gospel. You know what it is? They have to believe. It becomes good news. It is good news, and it becomes good news for you personally when you believe in Jesus for eternal life. You have to make sure that you have the gospel that you're talking about what is true, that you have defined it correctly, and then you have to defend it fiercely. I know some people think I give too much time to the gospel. The truth of the matter is you can't give too much time to the gospel. It's the gospel that changes people's lives, and we can't change it, and we can't corrupt it. The cost is too high, and people's eternal destinies are at stake. And the Apostle Paul comes to these Galatian believers, and he says, why are you turning away? Do you hear the amazement? I marvel that you are turning away. I'm utterly astounded that you would be turning away to another gospel of a different kind that is not another gospel of the exact kind that I have proclaimed to you. And whoever it is that's in your midst who's preaching that gospel, let him be dedicated to destruction. And just so you make sure you hear it again, let him be dedicated to destruction. This is no game. And one liberal preacher, churches are one liberal preacher away from apostasy we must protect the gospel fiercely number two we must proclaim the gospel clearly we must proclaim the gospel clearly you know it's interesting that the word gospel is euangelion that's the greek word for the word gospel it literally means good news or good tidings In other words, the gospel is the good news about what what God has done for sinners through Jesus Christ and that eternal life may be experienced by anyone that believes in Jesus. But a lot of times people don't understand that the word gospel is first a noun. It's something that you announce. It's something that you share. It's something that you talk about to others. A lot of times people will say, well, I'm just trying to live the gospel. Well, I understand what you mean by that, and I appreciate what you're saying by that, and I would never discourage you from saying that. But the reality is that the gospel is news, and it's news that has to be communicated, and it's news that has to be announced. It'd be a little bit like me saying this morning, you know, I'm going to be living out a story from today's newspaper that I read this morning. I got up and I looked through the newspaper this morning. Have you noticed the shrinking newspaper? in size and in content. Maybe that's a good thing. I take it for the obituaries for the most part. But if I came to you today and I said, I'm going to live out a story from today's newspaper that I read this morning, you'd probably say, I'm a pastor. That's impossible because that's news. That's a report of something that's already happened. And the purpose of the news is to inform. I know it was St. Francis of Assisi uh, that said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words, but he totally misses the point of the gospel. There's no other way to share news except in a written or in a verbal form. Just imagine that you go home this evening, and you turn on the news, 
and all they have showing are random people doing random things, and you have to figure out what's going on in the video that they're showing to you. I mean, you have to figure out what's happening. I mean, we'd all be confused. We'd all be confused. We, we have to have somebody who, tell, who tells us and, and announces to us what's going on. We could do without the commentary a lot of times, but we need somebody who tells us what is this that's happening in this video. They have to tell you the news. They have to uh, announce to you the news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, first of all, a noun. You hear that? It can be used as a verb. You proclaim the good news. You proclaim these things as well. But it's, first of all, a noun is telling you about something that has already occurred. It's news, and you got to go share that news. you got to announce that news. These false teachers had come to the territory of Galatia, and they were sharing the news, not the true news, the false news. But they were doing it with their words. They were communicating it and announcing it with their words. And what's the Apostle Paul doing? He's doing exactly the same thing. He is responding, not with a video and you figure out what he's got to say. He's announcing it with words because the gospel is news. And it's news that we've got to proclaim. And it's news that we've got to tell other people. The sad thing is, is that a lot of us, when it comes to sharing the gospel, are like Christopher Columbus. When he started out, he didn't know where he was going. When he got there, he didn't know where he was. And when he got back, he didn't know where he'd been. <laughs> and when it comes to the matter of sharing the gospel, we don't even understand what the news is. We don't understand the importance and the significance of the gospel. Can I, can I tell you, the power of God rests in the gospel. You understand that? It's not in your ability to reason your ability to be a great apologist, it's in the power. The power is in the gospel story itself, in the gospel news itself that we share with other people. And there's two principal points. You say, that, that definition you gave me of the gospel was just too long and too complicated. Well, let me narrow it down to you. There's two principal points. There's two chief points to the gospel that you must never get wrong. You must never get wrong. One is that people are reconciled to God entirely on account of the doings and the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Not on anything you do, not on any ability that you have, not on any goodness you may, you may, you may think you merit. It's all on the basis of what Christ has done and on the sufferings and the resurrection of Jesus. You have to get that right. And the second thing you have to get right is that people experience the benefit of these doings and sufferings of Christ solely by believing in him. Solely by believing in him. Do you realize today that if you would believe in Jesus today for eternal life without even uttering a word, you could become a child of the living God and your sins could be forgiven and you could walk away from here having been changed by the power of the gospel. I've often said this. You know, I've been here a long time. If you don't know what I believe by now, you'll never know what I believe. But I've often said this. 
that a lot of times when we have invitations and somebody would come and respond, that before they ever got to the altar and ever prayed a prayer to receive Jesus, they had already been saved. The moment they turned their heart to Jesus, at that instant, they became a child of the living God. They became a child of the living God. And every plan, every plan that's presented that doesn't embrace those two principles is another gospel that everything we have is because of what Jesus has done for us. And the only means of receiving it is by faith in Christ. We don't front load it and we don't back load it. You know what I mean by that? You don't say, well, you got to do this, this, and this, and then believe. And you don't say, well, you got to believe and then go do this, this, and this. Salvation is by faith and by faith alone in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and in him for eternal life. We have to be sure that we proclaim the gospel clearly. There isn't anybody who can't do that. You, you tell men that Jesus died for their sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he was God's sacrifice for the penalty that we owe, but that he rose again from the dead, and that if you will believe in Jesus today, you will become a child of the living God. You say, that's just too easy, Pastor. That's what makes it good news. Every other religion there is talks about what you have to do. Christianity talks alone about what has been done. And you have to simply believe it. And when you believe it, you become a child of the living God. But then let me say thir thirdly about the gospel. We have to protect it fiercely. But we also have to prize the gospel dearly. We have to proclaim it clearly, and we have to prize the gospel dearly. Do you know, you know what I mean by prize? I mean, as the dictionary says, to value it highly, to esteem it, to treasure it. There is no other gospel that can change men's lives. You can run every social program there is. And they will not change people's fundamental problem. Only the gospel can change people's fundamental problem, that they are sinners before God in need of the Savior. It's by the gospel that we're saved once and for all, forever. Yes, I believe in eternal security. I believe once you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are once and for all his child forever. Do you always live that way? Probably not, and neither do I. But he never disowns me as his child. And it calls me to a greater way of living because I know that I am his child representing him and I want to represent him well. But listen to me. This gospel not only saves us, this gospel sanctifies us. This gospel is what sets us apart. This gospel is what changes us. The power of this gospel that I'm talking about is the power to conform to the image of Jesus Christ, to become more like Christ with every day that passes. Some of you are at the baby stage. You're just growing and just beginning in your, your walk with God. Others of you are middle schoolers, and you're, you're, you're in a stage of life, and you're just beginning to learn more and more about Jesus. Some of you are way up here at the college level, and you've got great understanding but the gospel that saved you is the gospel that sanctifies you. 
One of the most fascinating passages to me is Romans chapter 1, verse 15. And the Apostle Paul writing in that chapter says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Do you know who he's writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to people who have already believed in Jesus for eternal life, who've already recognized that the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus is all that was necessary for the payment of their sins. And yet he says, I want to come and I want to preach to you again the gospel. You know why? Because the gospel not only saves men and women, the gospel sanctifies them. The power of the gospel is that what was what works in our lives. The reality is we never graduate from our need to hear the gospel. You say, I'm not growing like I used to grow. I'm not growing like I need to grow. You need to get back to the gospel. You need to come back and hear the gospel. Do you realize that in the 12 letters to the churches that the Apostle Paul wrote, excluding Hebrews, that would make it 13 if he wrote it, of the 12 letters that we know that Paul wrote to the churches, he used the word gospel 61 times. 61 times. He was constantly talking to Christians about the gospel. I don't want to hear the gospel on Sunday, preachers. I want to have something else. I want something to entertain me. I, I want something that makes me feel good, and I get goosebumps all over, and I get inspired. Listen, if you're not inspired by the gospel, nothing else will inspire you. It's the gospel that saves us. It's the gospel that sanctifies us, and I'm looking at a room full of people whose lives have been dramatically changed by the gospel. And your life is being changed every day by the power of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Look down at Galatians chapter 1 for just a moment. Verse 11. Excuse me, verse 12. Well, let's, look, let's look at verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers. You hear what he says? Do you get what he's telling you? The gospel that you people in Galatia are abandoning is the gospel that changed my life. We prize it dearly because the gospel changes our lives. It changes our lives positionally. And it changes our lives practically every single day. Every single day, our lives are being changed by the gospel, and we prize this gospel. It saved us from our sins, and it sanctifies us on a daily basis. It sets us apart unto God. It was the apostle Paul who said that he was the chief of, you know the next word? He was the chief of sinners. I was the chief of sinners, but God has shown me grace so that everybody else can see that no matter what you have done, the gospel can change you too. I don't know if you're a drug addict. I don't know if you're a sex addict. I don't know if you're committing adultery. You're living in sin by living together outside of marriage or sleeping together outside of marriage. I don't know if you're cursing and you're lying and you're cheating. I don't know if you've stolen. 
I don't know if you're doing other kinds of things that you know in the heart, in your heart of hearts, is morally wrong. But here's the reality. The gospel comes to you today, announced that in Jesus Christ, the penalty of your sins has been paid in full by his death, his burial, and his resurrection, so that if you would believe in Jesus Christ, you could be forgiven of your sins and made a child of the living God and given the gift of eternal life, and you can be changed instantaneously. That's the power of the gospel. And those of us who've been changed by that gospel, we hold it dear. When I get to heaven, I'm not going to stand there and say, Lord, I was a pastor for 45 years. You're surely going to let me in. I mean, Lord, p- please, you've got to let me in. I-, I served your church for 45 years. When I stand before Jesus, I'm going to cling to the gospel. And I'm going to say, Lord, I have no other entrance than by way of what you have done for me and by way of your gospel. Leslie B. Flynn is a Christian author, and he tells a story about an orphan boy who was living with his grandmother. By the way, I'm not through, so don't put your Bibles up. (laughs) He tells the story about an orphan boy who was living with his grandmother when the house caught on fire. His grandmother tried to get to him upstairs to rescue her grandson, but in the process, she died in the flames. The boy kept crying for somebody to come and rescue him, and there was a man who climbed up an iron drain pipe got the boy, had him put his arms around his neck, and the boy hanging on as tightly as he could, he came back down that iron pipe. Several weeks passed, and there was a public hearing to determine who would take custody of this young boy and continue to raise him. There was a farmer, there was a teacher, and there was the town's wealthiest citizen, all of them there, to give explanation why they should be entrusted with this little boy. But all the while they were talking about why they should have the responsibility of raising this boy, those that were listening noticed that the boy's eyes just kept focused on the floor. He never looked up. Then there was a stranger who walked to the front and slowly took his hands out of his pockets, revealing the burns, the the burn scars, the severe scars that were on them. And as the crowd gasped, looking at his hands, the boy cried out in recognition. This was the man that had saved his life. His hands had been burned when he climbed the hot pipe. And with a leap, the boy threw uh, threw himself into his arms. This man's arms grabbed hold of his his neck and held on for dear life. The other three that had come just sort of turned and walked away. Because those marred hands settled the issue. And so it is with us and with Jesus. It's his nail-pierced hands that will always remind us that he is the one who rescued us from our sins and its deadly consequences. And I think when we see anyone in heaven, the very first one we'll see in heaven is the one who has the nail prints in his hands and his feet and who has the spear-riven side And we'll spend the rest of eternity praising the one, probably wishing to hold on to his neck and to never let go because through his gospel and us believing in him, our lives were transformed once and for all and forever and we became a child of the living God. So let me give you the application to this message. Number one, trust in Christ to be your Savior today while he's calling you. 
Trust in Christ today to be your Savior while he's calling you. He's calling you. You say, well, I'll take care of it later this week. Do you know what happens? You can feel the tug of the Spirit of God within your heart, within your soul, and you know that God is calling to you. God is doing something within you. But as soon as you walk out of this room, Satan is waiting on the other side of these walls to steal the seed of the gospel out of your heart so that you won't be born again. This is the moment. This is the time. Not later, not a few days from now, not a few weeks from now, not a few months from now. This is the time. You're hearing the gospel. Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. And by you believing in Christ for eternal life, you can become a child of the living God before you leave this room. And today is your day. He's calling you. You know your mind, in your mind. You're guilty of sin. You know it. Today is the day for you to trust in Christ to be your Savior while he's calling you. I don't know if he'll call you again. I don't know. I don't know how hard your heart is. I don't know how calloused you have become. But right this moment, he's calling you. And if you'll believe in Jesus, you can become a child of the living God. Secondly, give thanks to Christ for his gospel that saves us from sin. In just a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to turn your seat into an altar. And if you are physically able to get on your knees and say, thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. Thank you that somebody brought me the gospel Thank you that I believed in the gospel. I believed in Christ, the Christ of the gospel, and I received eternal life as a result. Thank you that you changed my life and you changed my eternal destiny. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Of all the things you can say thank you at this season of the year, there is nothing more important for you to say thank you than for the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, Take the opportunity this season to share Christ with others. You don't have to be super smart. You don't have to be a great apologist. You don't have to know every verse of the Bible. You don't have to be a preacher who's studied it from cover to cover and can give explanation of things that are difficult to understand. You only have to be somebody who's willing to tell the news. And you slip up to your relatives and to your friends while you're eating cranberry sauce. Oh, can we leave out the cranberry sauce? You slip up to your neighbor and your friends. You say, can I tell you how Jesus changed my life? No, I'm not interested. Just give me me a minute. Let me tell you. Jesus came and he paid the penalty for our sins. They thought they'd finished with him. They thought they'd silenced him and they put him in a tomb. They put guards out in front. They thought they were through. But on that Easter Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the grave, and Jesus is alive today. And what Jesus purchased through his death is now available through his life. And if you'll ask Jesus to be your Savior, if you'll come and just believe in Jesus for eternal life, he'll save you. You say, they won't listen to me. Listen, all you're responsible for is sowing the seed or watering it. That's all you're responsible for. But if we don't start sharing this gospel, not only will we not see our families saved, this country is going to go to hell. 
if the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ don't come back to the gospel and start proclaiming it. I don't mean from the pulpit alone. I mean from the people everywhere proclaiming the gospel.